Good morning. Welcome to With God at Dawn. This morning we're studying Christ and the Apostles as city missionaries. Let's start with prayer. Dear Jesus, Lord, help us to understand the importance of doing the work in the cities and finding a way to support your work. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. What's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? I found that out just a couple of years ago, and I guess I'm a little late bloomer, but um, the disciples were working under a master and a teacher, and the apostles were working after Jesus were gone, but it was the same people just doing different work. And why is it important to work in the cities? Because the cities is where Satan does his special work of gathering people into groups where they can infect each other with crime and all of the things that he pushes in the world to cause destruction and suffering. That's where they all get together into big groups, and he does his best work there. And so God wants to reach in there to try to save some people. <clears throat> most of God's people, let's say most, I wish that were true, but have moved away from large cities, even though that seems to be a place where more money can be earned for people who have uh, certain careers that make more money in cities. <sighs> we're going to start this morning with Matthew 9. Verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus worked all the cities, well, it included villages as well. Matthew 4, 23 and 24 tell us, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. So the health work opens the door for other kind of work, doesn't it? Jesus began with health work. He healed people before he tried to teach them anything. Like he would say, go and sin no more. Then sin would be discussed or thought of, but he would heal them first. Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. So they would open the way for him. And then by the time he arrived, there would be people waiting for him to work with. The workers went two and two into every city. Luke 10, verse 9. And they heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come near unto you, or nigh unto you. So they cared for the sick. Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voices, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. First city worker after the crucifixion. That's interesting. Was that Philip? 
Oh. Yeah, because Saul hadn't been converted yet that early. Mm -hmm. That was Philip. Acts of the Apostles, page 106 and 107. Philip, one of the seven deacons, was among those driven from Jerusalem. He went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with, this, with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. So I had a question for you. Um, these unclean spirits, uh, when people were possessed with them, they would have the symptoms of disease and illness, wouldn't they? I wonder how many people, we're so civilized in our country, we don't really think about evil spirits much around here. Uh, but I wonder if many of people's illnesses are, are caused by being possessed. And uh, we don't have the Lord doing that anymore. I, I know that there are people who claim to cast out evil spirits. But uh, I just don't know. I, I'm actually under the impression that individually we have power to drive them out. It's just a very uncomfortable process. What it is is self-denial. Every time you're tempted with something, you deny it and you deny it at some point. Since they can't get you to do anything, they leave. And so it's a matter of going to the Lord for the power to deny temptation and self-discipline and having self-discipline. And then at some point, the evil spirits, if they have no power over you, they just leave and you pray for the Lord to indwell you. You can cast your own evil spirits out, so to speak, just by not giving them um, a voice through you. And it's just my idea, you know, but... Uh, Okay, Christ's message to the Samaritan woman with whom he had talked at Jacob's well had borne fruit. Remember, he had talked to the Samaritan woman, and now, after his crucifixion, as the disciples or apostles went from city to city, when they went to Samaria, there was a group of people. They went with her. They heard Jesus. They believed on him, and anxious to hear more, they begged him to remain. For two days, Jesus stayed among them, and many more believed because of his own word. And when his disciples were driven from Jerusalem, some found in Samaria a safe asylum. The Lord had prepared the way for them to have somewhere to go. The Samaritans welcomed these messengers of the gospel, and the Jewish converts gathered a precious harvest from among those who had once been their bitterest enemies. Philip's work in Samaria was marked with great success, and thus encouraged he went to Jerusalem for help. The apostles now perceived more fully the meaning of the words of Christ. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. While Philip was still in Samaria, he was directed by a heavenly messenger to go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza. And he arose and went. He did not question the call, nor did he hesitate to obey. For he had learned the lesson of conformity to God's will. That's the lesson we need to learn. Um, that's wonderful. Um, where am I? Acts 13, 42 to 45. The book of Acts has much of the early work of the apostles after Jesus was gone. So I think we'll spend a lot of our time here this morning. Acts 13, 42 to 45. 
And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. They had open-air meetings since no synagogue could hold almost the whole city. In the book Acts of the Apostles again, which tells uh, many of the movements the apostles made after Christ's crucifixion. Page 171 through 174 will give us a little bit more information. Okay. Having made this declaration, Paul said, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, that's anybody, even Gentiles, isn't it? Whoso among you fears God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. Oh man, here the rulers fulfilled the very words of the prophets, and um, they didn't realize that they had done that. When they condemned Jesus. Paul did not hesitate to speak the plain truth concerning the rejection of the Savior by the Jewish leaders. Though they found no cause of death in him, the apostle declared, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. We declare unto you glad tidings, the apostle continued, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it's also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And, and as concerning that he raised him up, yeah, the firstborn from the dead at that time, this time, right? This day have I begotten thee, like firstborn from the dead. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So, always in the Bible, well, so many times you find verses that talk about when people die that they're sleeping. And here it says that he fell on sleep. And so he was sleeping in his grave until he would be called. And now having spoken plainly of the fulfillment of familiar prophecies concerning the Messiah, Paul preached unto them repentance and the remission of sin through the merits of Jesus, their Savior. Be it known unto you, he said, that through this man, it, um, through this man, it is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. Okay, here we go. We are justified by the blood of Christ. 
See, there's a process, isn't it? We're not made righteous by the blood of Christ. We're justified by the blood of Christ, which means all of our sins are paid. Our debt is paid, and we can stand before the law without shame. But then there's another step, Christ indwelling in you, bringing his righteousness with him. Then you, are, then you can become righteous through the work he does with it in you. Let's see. I got to back up. Be it known unto you, he said, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The Spirit of God accompanied the words that were spoken and hearts were touched. The apostles appealed to Old Testament prophecies and his declaration that these had been fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth carried conviction to many a soul longing for the advent of the promised Messiah and the speaker's words of assurance that the glad tidings of salvation were for Jew and Gentile alike brought hope and joy to those who had not been numbered among the children of Abraham according to the flesh. Well, okay, so the reason I point that out about justification is that there are many today who have the, the erroneous idea that our righteousness is by faith. If we have faith in Christ, we are counted righteous. But in fact, um, our faith is in the righteousness of Christ, but we're justified by his blood, and he uh, brings his righteousness and gives it to us. So, it's his righteousness. It's our faith in the righteousness of Christ that saves us. There is not one thread of human devising in our salvation. There's, uh, we don't have righteousness just because we believe in Jesus. We have righteousness because he indwells us and changes who we are. So it might be a finer point. Nevertheless, it's important. And the reason why is because people then take that idea that we're righteous by faith in Christ, and they think that no matter what they do, they're still counted righteous, and that there's no um, nothing that needs to happen in their lives. Nevertheless, we know, the Bible says it very clearly, that we're saved by faith, but we are rewarded according to our works. And James and other places tell us that true faith brings forth works as a result of it. So you can't just say, I have righteousness by faith, but it doesn't matter what I do. So I guess that's the whole point why it matters, as people think that as long as we have faith, it doesn't matter how we live, but it does matter. And that is the nut of the matter. It matters how we live. Our works reveal whether we have true faith. Okay, so that's the reason why it matters. Reading on. When the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The congregation having finally broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes who had accepted the glad tidings born to them that day followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. The interest aroused in Antioch of Pisidia by Paul's discourse brought together on the next Sabbath day almost a whole city to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles, for so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Yeah, God meant for the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles, they hoarded it to themselves. 
When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, they rejoiced exceedingly that Christ recognized them as the children of God. And with grateful hearts, they listened to the word preached. Those who believed were zealous in communicating the gospel message to others. And thus, the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Hmm. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, he came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said to them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto them, Well, we haven't even as much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Well, unto what were you then baptized? They said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily just baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so here, I want you to notice something. When they baptized in the New Testament, they, they baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they always did. But there's a place that says, I think it's in First uh, John 5, somewhere. I'm not sure exactly, but where it says to baptize in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, those are titles. Those are not names of anybody. Father is a name, is a title. Son is a title. Holy Spirit is a title. And those were the authority of uh, titles that Jesus bore. He bore all three of those titles. You can find that if you look. He's our everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, and he's also the son of God, and um, he is, it's also his spirit, that the authority of all of these titles that they were to baptize under. And so when they actually baptized, you'll find in the New Testament, they baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What we just read here, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay. Oh, okay. And then when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. So the work in Ephesus was a sample of what kind of work they did in the city. But let's go to Acts 18, 18 through 24. And Paul, after this, carried there yet a good, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren. He sailed thence to Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Cancuria for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. So Paul went into the synagogue in the city. When they desired him to stay longer with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now, why do you think Paul wanted to keep that feast in Jerusalem? The ceremonial laws and the feast days had been nailed to the cross, right? It's because that's where all the Jews were going to be, and he would be able to reach them for Jesus, right? He was going to find a, them all there. And uh, Paul had it on his heart to undo the damage he had done by his early witness in life. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch 
And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Bible workers prepared the way so that the one who followed could then bring forth much fruit for the Lord. Acts 19.8 tells us, And he went unto the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now why would he go to the synagogue if the Jews there were against him and were persecuting the church? It's because he really wanted to reach his people. He considered his brethren his people. And he wanted to reach as many as he could. And besides, that's where everybody was gathering still. Three months worth of public effort were unsuccessful, sadly. Acts of the Apostles, page 285. <clears throat> there is still another lesson for us in the experience of those Jewish converts. When they received baptism at the hand of John, they did not fully comprehend the mission of Jesus as the sin-bearer. They were holding serious errors. Yeah, they thought he was going to be a king there, right? But with clearer light, they gladly accepted Christ as their Redeemer, which is really what he came for. And with this step of advance came a change in their obligations. As they received a purer faith, there was a corresponding change in their life. In token of this change, now see, that's what I was talking about earlier. Um, when they received a purer faith, there came a corresponding change in their life. Now, Jesus, when he first accepts him, we're justified by faith in his blood. And then he comes in and indwells us because we have faith in him, and he begins to change us. We have a corresponding change in our life. In, okay, so in token of this change, and as an acknowledgement of their faith in Christ, they were rebaptized in the name of Jesus. As was his custom, Paul had begun his work at Ephesus by preaching in the synagogue of the Jews. He continued to labor there for three months, disputing, persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. At first, he met with a favorable reception, but as in other fields, he was soon violently opposed. Diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude as they persisted in their rejection of the gospel. The apostle ceased to preach in the synagogue when it speaks of that way. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what he was preaching, was the way of Christ. Acts 19, 9 and 10. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannius, Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they that which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So he found some place to preach, didn't he? And great success followed. Acts 19, 18 and 19. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, many of them also which used curious arts. 
brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. They had genuine reformation. They were willing to throw away their, their uh, books with curious arts, which leads one to believe in uh, Satan worship, right? Acts of the Apostles, pages 287 and 288. But the one to whom all the spirits of evil are subject, who had given his servants authority over them, was about to bring still greater shame and defeat upon those who despised and profaned his holy name. Sorcery had been prohibited by the Mosaic law on pain of death, yet from time to time it had been secretly practiced by apostate Jews. At the time of Paul's visit to Ephesus, there were in the city certain of the vagabond Jews exorcists, who, seeing the wonders wrought by him, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. An attempt was made by seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, a chief of the priests. Finding a man possessed with a demon, they addressed him, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. But the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Thus unmistakable proof was given of the sacredness of the name of Christ and the peril which they incurred who should invoke it without faith in the divinity of the Savior's mission. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. <clears throat> Acts nineteen twenty three to 28 And the same time there arose no small stir about that place. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, and brought no small gain into the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying, they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard those things, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Well, if you've ever seen a, <laughs> a picture of her, she's covered with breasts and just an ugly thing. And yet um, they worshipped this idol and they were concerned more about their money and their income, weren't they, than anything. And it created a riot. These idolaters created a riot. Acts 19, 36 and 37. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, they were told. For you have brought hither these men which are there neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. So in quieting the riot, the town clerk said that Paul and his workers were neither robbers of their churches or blasphemers of their goddess. Acts of the Apostles, page 294 and 295, gives us some more details. The tumult in the theater where everybody was shouting, Great is the goddess Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. It was continually increasing. Some cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and the more part knew not. Wherefore they were come together, <laughs> told Mob Riot. 
The fact that Paul and some of his companions were of Hebrew extraction made the Jews anxious to show plainly that they were not sympathizers with him in his work. They therefore brought forward one of their own number to set the matter before the people. The speaker chosen was Alexander, one of the craftsmen and coppersmith, to whom Paul afterward referred to as having done him much evil. Alexander was a man of considerable ability. He bent all his energies to direct the wrath of the people exclusively against Paul and his companions. But the crowd, seeing that Alexander was a Jew, thrust him aside, and all with one voice about the space of two hours just stood there crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, at last, from sheer exhaustion. They got quiet, and there was a momentary silence. And the recorder of the city arrested the attention of the crowd by virtue of his office, obtained a hearing. He met the people on their own ground. He showed there was no cause for this tumult. He appealed to their reason. You men of Ephesus, he said, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing in that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly, for you have brought together these men which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. So wherefore... If Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open. There are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly, for we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. When he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Hmm. Notice there was not one who could accuse them of blaspheming Diana. So if Paul, during his three months' course of lectures, had railed on Diana, it would have been different. No doubt the Jews who attended Paul's meeting would have been pleased to have heard him malign Diana, but that was not his method of teaching the masses in that great city. Testimonies, Volume 9, pages 109 and 124. We're getting down to the very last here. 109. In connection with the proclamation of the message in large cities, there's many kinds of work to be done by laborers with varied gifts. Some are to labor in one way and some in another. The Lord desires that the city shall be worked by the united efforts of laborers of different capabilities. All are to look to Jesus for direction, not depending on man for wisdom lest they be led astray. As laborers together with God, they should seek to be in harmony with one another, like Paul could have caused a lot of trouble if he would have railed on Diana. But he didn't do that because he was reaching souls for Jesus. So why talk about Diana? He wanted to talk about Jesus. And we should take um, some knowledge of how, how he did that so we wouldn't do anything foolish either. There should be frequent counsels and earnest wholehearted cooperation we're all to look to Jesus for wisdom, not depending upon men alone for directions. The Lord has given to some ministers the ability to gather and hold large congregations. This calls for the exercise of tact and skill. In the cities of today, where there is so much to attract and please, the people can be interested by no ordinary efforts. It's not easy to get their interest, is it? Ministers of God's appointment will find it necessary to put forth extraordinary efforts in order to attract the attention of multitudes. And when they succeed in bringing together a large number of people, they must bear messages of a character so out of the usual order that the people will be aroused and warned. They must make use of every means that can possibly be devised.
or causing the truth to stand out clearly and distinctly. The testing message for this time is to be born so plainly, so decidedly, as to startle the hearers and lead them to desire to study the scriptures. And then on page 124, Ministers preach the truth that will lead to personal labor for those who are out of Christ. Encourage personal effort in every possible way. Remember, a minister's work does not consist merely in preaching. He's supposed to visit families in their homes to pray with them. Open to them the scriptures. He who does faithful work outside of the pulpit will accomplish tenfold more than he who confines his labor to the desk or the pulpit. Let our ministers carry their load of responsibility with fear and trembling, looking to the Lord for wisdom, asking constantly for his grace. Let them make Jesus their pattern, diligently study his life, bringing into the daily practice the principles that actuated him in his service upon the earth. Now, how did Jesus work? He, he healed first and reached hearts, fed people that were hungry, and that sort of thing. He took care of people first and then told them to sin no more. And he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is a prescription for the healing of all mental, physical, spiritual ills. It's Christ's gift to those who seek him in sincerity and in truth. He's a mighty healer. Then comes the next invitation, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. But that always comes second. So God has his way of working, and he wants us to work. There was one reference that I, page 299 of Gospel Workers, did not get my book out. So if you can bear with me, I'm going to try to bring it up in my uh, my research edition here. Okay, let's look. Book and page. Gospel Workers was, was it. But what page was it? Oh, shoot. Let me go back and see. It was page um, 299. Okay. Page 299. 299. Okay, there it is. God will arouse his people if other means fail. Heresies will come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. In some books, like the, the uh, 58 Great Controversy, it refers to that as a shaking time. Uh, God will, if other means fail, heresies will come in among his people. That will sift them, separate the chaff from the wheat, because people will be agitated and will look for answers. The Lord calls upon those who believe his words to awake out of sleep. Precious light has come, appropriate for this time. It's Bible truth showing the perils that are right upon us. This light should lead us to diligently study the scriptures and a most critical examination of the positions which we hold. God would have all the bearings and positions of truth thoroughly and perseveringly searched with prayer and fasting. Believers are not to rest in suppositions and ill-defined ideas of what constitutes truth. Their faith must be firmly founded upon the word of God so that when the testing time shall come and they're brought before councils to answer for their faith, they might be able to give a reason for the hope that's in them with meekness and fear. Agitate, agitate, agitate the subjects which we present to the world. They must be to us a living reality. It's important that in defending the doctrines which we consider fundamental articles of faith, we should never allow ourselves to employ arguments that are not wholly sound. These may avail to silence an opposer, but they do not honor the truth. 
we should present sound arguments that will not only silence our opponents, but will bear the closest and most searching scrutiny. With those who have educated themselves as debaters, there's great danger. They will not handle the word of God with fairness in meeting an opponent. It should be our earnest effort to present subjects in such a manner as to awaken conviction instead of seeking merely to give confidence to the believer. Okay, so I think that's referring to the fact that Paul himself in uh, those they're speaking to, they did not put down Diana of the Ephesians. That would have just been like a personal attack and would not have in, done good, you know, for bringing books. There goes my books. Oh, dear, a pile of books went off the table. So that wouldn't have been a good thing to do. So we have to have tact, don't we? All right, let me just summarize really quickly the things that we have been reading. Jesus worked all the cities. The health work opened doors. And healing what happened before teaching anybody anything, before repentance. Workers went two and two to every city. They cared for the sick. Philip was the first city worker after the crucifixion. They had open-air meetings because there were so many people. A synagogue would not hold them all. The way that they worked in Ephesus was a sample of how God wants us to work. Bible workers prepare the way for the preachers. So they had unsuccessful efforts in three months. We were reread, but they didn't leave, but they changed their methods. And they taught in school for two years, and they had great success. There was genuine reformation. And idolatry tottered throughout almost all Asia because of their work. But the idolaters created a riot because they saw that they were going to lose their income. But after quieting the riot, the town clerk said Paul and his workers were neither robbers or blasphemers. And that teaches us a lesson when we do our work. We are not to put down other people's beliefs or simply to lead them to Jesus. See, there was not even one who could accuse them of blaspheming Diana. If Paul, during his three months course of lectures, had railed on Diana, it would have been different. No doubt the Jews who attended Paul's meetings would have been pleased to have heard him malign Diana, but that was not his method. All right, let's close with prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you have given us instructions how to reach people by healing first before trying to help them to repent and bring them to conviction and baptism and accepting the truth. Thank you, Lord, that you are able to give us this caring to love the unlovely, to live a life that shows an example of what it is like to be filled with your spirit. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Tomorrow morning, we're going to begin the study on the nature of man. This is going to involve understanding the state of what is death and that sort of thing. And so we're switching to a different subject, the nature of man. We'll see you in the morning. Have a wonderful day.